we're back. Net takeaways with Feller and Harf. Oh, yeah. Beach. Looking great today. <laughs> little well, warm? Little warm. Yeah, I am fully turtleneck uh, attired here. I think I'm already ready for fall right now, which I'm like trying to rush it because it's all of 77 degrees. And you decided to walk me about a mile to lunch. Um, and so I am schwitzing, as they say. Yeah. It was a nice uh, summer day. Fall doesn't come until September 21st. So is that is that actually the first day of fall or are you just pulling that out? I have Isn't a, it always on the 20th? It's like that's the, the fall, the fall equinox or the vernal equinox. June 21st, September 21st. No, it moves. It's always different. Mm-hmm. Let's look this up. Let's take a quick look oh, at this. Yeah. But it always moves, so that I don't believe that I'm is. Very good at these types of things, I guess. I always thought June 21st was the longest day of the year. No, it moves. It moves. It moves. It moves somehow. It's probably not on an axis, yeah. but somebody I'd, much smarter than me understands how it moves. It's totally fine. I'll leave it up to them, and I'll just. You were incredibly close. How close? September twenty second is the start of fall. That's the that's the autumn equinox. It's yeah. when the days are the equal length. So. But um, I don't think you're breathing heavily. We'll have to let listeners let us know if you're breathing heavily. You were worried that you sounded like you were breathing heavily because once again, you are holding the microphone because we are still waiting on our microphone boom to officially come in. I know. I'm very excited uh, to officially have a microphone that just you know, teleports down and, and, and magically lands right in front of my mouth. Just teleports, just kind of exactly. manifests itself. Exactly. It was like when somebody once told me that there was a hovercraft option on a Ford F-250, and uh, I believed them. That wasn't good. That wasn't <laughs> you, good. You're looking at me with like you're projecting. Well, proje- that was, no, no, did that I, was just a very high. Did I make that, no, that claim? No, oh, thank you. God. I was no. going to be like, I don't remember doing that. Yeah, no. But it does also kind of sound like something I would do. Yeah, no. No, it wasn't, it wasn't you, but I, you know, gullible Isaiah certainly <laughs> So I was like, oh, the hovercraft action sounds expensive. <laughs> well, it's kind of like post-lunch breathing, right? You start breathing a little heavier after lunch, and I'm trying to make make claim that's real. I don't know if it is or isn't. I think your heart rate increases if you take a nice walk after lunch, don't you? Yeah, or if you eat, uh, I don't know, a cheesesteak for lunch, that's got to bring the, the heart rate up a little well, bit. that was not me. Well, I know. That's, certainly my, my, I did not my mean to suggest that was it. Who, who may or may not listen to this podcast does not need to know that I indulged in a what'd you say cheeseburger <laughs> cheesesteak it does sound good steak. though doesn't it no i had a salad let's let's stay on course here i had a salad and i did stay on course but have you ever had a, a proper philadelphia cheesesteak i have actually i've never had that that's on my yeah. list of things to do do you know the type of cheese i, I think you, it's cheese whiz right well yeah isn't some, that the proper cheese so yes yeah, so some i think pat's Pat, the Pats and Geno's are like the two famous right. spots. And, yeah, I think Pats uses cheese was, um, or, or you know, melted cheese was, you know, and they just slap. there's no other kind melted cheese was. There's no oh, actually, you know what they yeah. no. I'm thinking Velveeta. I'm now I'm confusing oh. Velveeta. No, like they literally just like like use a uh, slather a it on there. Oh my <laughs> god. Throw a spatula down on it, yeah. Side of Lipitor to wash it down with. Because you have to have it. It looks delicious. But I do want to eat it, even knowing how bad it must be for you. Oh, my gosh. So, Paige, what's going on in the real estate world these days? Yep. You just jumped right to big story number one that we're going to cover here and and talk about. Um, 
we have not done a net lease market check-in in a pretty hot amount of time. So we definitely want to cover that today. Um, I would say that uh, you and I were talking before about this market right now is, is more fluid and shifting more than it has at any point in the last decade and on kind of a weekly and certainly a monthly, but even a weekly basis. Yeah. I really think it's interesting. I mean, if you, if you took my temperature a month ago uh, about the market and actually I, I spoke at that Netley summit uh, and what I said there, I think even today has changed based upon what we're seeing in the marketplace and how uh, buyers and sellers are reacting to the news that is is delivered to us every single day. Um, and, and maybe more so than anything, uh, it's really interesting to see kind of how, how the marketplace has divided itself. Uh, I think that's one of the common things that, you know, we're really seeing right now and, and, and every, you know, all the, all the fancy talking heads like to, like to use the word bifurcation, right? But I, I that is definitely the buzzword, and I am guilty of using that buzzword. But that's the buzzword. Frothy and bifurcation. The minute I hear those two words, I know I'm really listening to a pro. But uh, <laughs> well, my word has been, and I don't know if you would say that this is uh, a pro word. And then I want to hear more about the, the separation into two camps. I think the biggest thing word that defines what I'm seeing right now is sponginess in the market. Oh, spongy. Spongy. Oh. The market is very spongy. Oh, I like that. And that's an original BJ Feller word. I yeah, have. that is not something that uh, I use in my daily dialect. Well, I don't think many people do, so you're not alone there. But yeah. I, you know, I think it's spongy. The market is still sure. there. People are still active, both on the buy and the sell side. Sure. But the the firmness of people's desire to take action, certainly on the buy side, is just it's not. It's not resilient right now. No, no, it really isn't. And I think that bifurcation is not a word. That if anybody's using bifurcation, they are not in the same business as you and I. Because what is go- the amount of segments in our business right now, I, I would say is probably six or seven. But I'll only talk about maybe three. But it, it, it's not two, right? And it's funny, even three weeks ago, I said, yeah, you know, you have deals under $7 million dollars which typically in our space are not bought with debt. And they're pretty, you know, the, the, the cap rates are not in tune with where constants are. And then, you know, about 80% of deals north of $7 million on a price point basis do get financed, whether it's at purchase or whether it's, you know, 30 days later. Uh, and they are very sensitive to financing. And I kind of put it into two separate camps, right? And today, as I said, I think there's like six or seven camps, right? I'm going to coin a new word right now. And that's octofication. Oh. Octofication. It's like oh. Octomom, but oh, so that's where you're going. I, I stole it from you. Oh, no. It's Octomom. O- it's Octomom meeting fracation, fracation. She, she found another way to make money. What, what's, her, what's her business plan? Well, she oh, was no. a speaker. And then she decided. I see this going to a dark spot right now. Yeah, she, she then decided. She, she's on the OnlyFans. She, I, I think she is. Yeah. Though I wouldn't know personally. <laughs> Uh, I don't know why, but in your eyes, I just saw you projecting OnlyFans. Well, yeah, she, she did uh, do some camera work. Oh, no. Yeah. That's that's the direction. So she was famous for a hot minute. Hit every TV show. Today, Good Morning America. I mean, she ate children. Well, I mean, she literally, her, her greatest le- leading legacy, so... I say that the right way. The legacy she will leave on American society is to introduce everyone to the prefix octa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone knows it's eight, so that's why we're using octrification. Okay, I like it. 
target. But anyway, it, it's very interesting. I mean, I I uh, I was talking about this this morning actually with a client, and I I'm starting to see big pushback on very low cap rate deals, even with the best of credit. I am starting to see a marketplace that as long as the price point is small, but that the cap rate is called north of five and a half, 575 cap, and maybe there's some decent credit. That market is as fluid as ever. And you would think that you can't do no wrong. Business as usual. Business as usual. I'm starting to see a market that if you're north of just, just $5 million, if you're north of $5 million, I think the cap rate on your deal has risen tremendously in the last four weeks. And I, I really, and I think this, this probably is the only thing that has remained true. I think that deals right north of $20 million right now are incredibly hard to get done because, especially if there isn't in-place financing, because right now banks, banks are being very, very careful and very slow. And the amount of purchasers who are just outright purchasing, not in a time and circumstance situation, not in a 1031, I think are very slim right now to put out money on 20 plus million dollar deals, unless you're an institution. And then then you're talking about institutional pricing, which is definitely north of a six camp right now. Yeah, I think the institutional market for, for most intents right now it is just not active. I think that 90% of the activity for institutions is on the sideline, certainly north of 20, but I'd even say it goes beyond that. I think some of it is the typical end of summer slowdown that you always see, which we didn't see meaningfully in, in, in June and even into July, but it seems like it may be manifesting itself a little bit right now. We're seeing also lending tightening, which you touched on. The credit spreads are really wide right now. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of five-year debt that's being quoted well into the fives, even though the treasury has declined. I mean, you know, we're looking at a lot of credit spreads that are, in some instances, 300 basis points over. So you've got that end of summer slowdown, 300 basis points over, continued wonky economic indicators, not in one direction, both directions. And I just think we're finally seeing the market really, really move right now for particularly that large price point segment. Yeah, and it's really moving because I think a majority of the market's throwing their hands up, right? And saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know what this is going to look like. It's not that I don't have money, but I, I just, I don't, I don't know what this is going to look like. So I'm going to hit the pause button. So if, if you have to force somebody to buy, right? And you say, well, let's go to those who are still willing to put money out, right? Where's your pricing? I don't think sellers are liking that price. I think it's even more than that. I, I've never seen deals where it's difficult to solicit a bid at any level of pricing. Typically speaking in our market, even if you're overpriced on asset, you can get a bid somewhere between 100 to 150 basis points. Right. In so many words, if I forced you to. Correct. That, that guarantee of even on low cap rate deals and high cap rate deals, bringing a bid within 100 to 150 basis points um, is virtually always a possibility. And today, I think there's a lot of assets where people don't want to bid on them, even within that 100 to 150 basis point spread. Right. They just, they, they can't see the longevity of them sitting in their portfolio, ultimately. I think that's what 
right? Ultimately, that's that's the prevention. I think it's different. I think that people don't want to make a mistake right now. Right. I think that that's more choppy. I think that people don't want to buy assets when they view pricing as moving. And I think there's segments of fundamentals that people find difficult to analyze right now. I think people, for instance, right now, we're seeing a lot of illiquidity in Manhattan retail condos. There's a very pervasive belief, right or wrong, that we're going to see a lot of downward pressure on rents in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's been times where we've seen that um, back in, I think it was 2017, 2016, there was some of that, but it hasn't been to this degree in magnitude. I think you're absolutely right. I really do. It's a very wonky market right now. And uh, the good news is, is that I think for us, it will eliminate some of our competition. What do you think? Well, look, I mean, we've had effectively a 10-year run where brokerage has gotten at a minimum not more difficult than it was the year before. And in many cases, easier to do commercial real estate brokerage for a decade. Sure. I don't know that that's ever existed I mean, maybe in the 80s it did. I'm just thinking back. It really never got easier. And anytime you see a market condition be favorable and not get harder, you're going to see a lot of entrance into the market. And there's a lot of people who've never learned the skill that you have and other other folks. We're not the only people that have this skill, but they've never learned the skill of selling deals when a market is moving against you or against sellers. And worse yet, they just don't know how to sell, right? (laughs) You have to know I was being a little more gentle than that. I was assuming that they could sell in, yeah. in good markets. But, yeah. you know, sometimes deals sell itself. And there's a lot of brokers out there who just figured if I, if I throw it into the market and wait for the bids to come in, it'll sell. Right. And you do absolutely have to sell deals right now. Absolutely. No question. <laughs> what, what are you looking at as the year goes on? Um, you're probably actively working on, at this point, 15 deals you know, in various stages of the life cycles that, that are out there getting bids in. What's the biggest indicator that you're watching as it relates to advising clients and buyers about what to look for as I call it hunting season, but the deal-making season begins? Yeah, I, I think one, it, right, it really starts with, with uh, you know, what you touched on, right, which is, which is what kind of product am I bringing to market? that is going to sell. And if I have unfavorable product, right, how do we make sure that we kind of stay ahead of that curve so we don't fall into a lull and we don't end up having an asset that sits on the market and just constantly gets beaten up every day, right? We, we, you, you don't want to be in that position if you think that, you know, the knife is even gradually falling, much less sharply falling. So, I think the first thing that I'm looking at is, 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 is I'm looking at the inventory, right? And I'm saying, okay, one, are we priced correctly? Two, would you look at this asset and say, is this a good deal, right? And if you can't say, yeah, I think this is a decent deal, we're not, we're not listing it appropriately, right? We're just not. So we got to be price sensitive, right? I just wanted to distill that down because I think you make a great point. And I think it's, uh, you could get away from that over that. Uh, Pick your time, whether it was three years ago or five years ago, you could say it's a marginal deal. And the test was never would I buy this because, you know, that's a very high test. But the test was, is it a decent deal? And plenty of deals sold that we would not have labeled as good deals, just decent deals. And today, is the decent deal selling? Probably not. It's really the deals that you look at and to your point, past that good deal litmus test. Right. You know, and that, and, and two, 
I think it's about coaching your client and and making sure that the current landlord of the asset, if they are a seller in today's market, has the expectation that, frankly, more offers are better than just one offer, right? And so looking for that one buyer who may pay yesterday's pricing, right, and may or may not come to the surface is 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 farly less probable than creating a situation where you have two, three, four bids and you end up bidding up the price because you did price that asset correctly. And so I'm really I'm really focused on working with people and making sure that the inventory is 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 fitting more that second bucket than certainly the first bucket. I think there are certain assets, right? If they have certain intrinsic things going on, they're in the right location. Maybe they don't have options to the hill. Maybe the rent is really correct. Uh, you know, it's really marked to market. And there's, you know, maybe there's even some value add component, right? I think that those are the assets, provided that the location is not in the middle of nowhere. I think that those are the types of assets right now that the market can still, you know, can still bear to to see somewhat of a higher price and still yield offers. More aggressive asking Correct. price. But I will tell you, I mean, I think it is a very, very tough market right now to sell an asset sub five cap. I think that the assets that we're trading in the fours and maybe even in the high threes, I mean, they better be low rent deals. Okay. And they better have top notch credit, right? Franchisee fast food credit, just because it has credit, just because it has lease term, right? And maybe a brand that you eat at once a month is not going to pass the sniff test anymore. I like that you use sniff test, no pun intended. Um, Octor I can smell pop by you. I I am I'm, get, I'm getting nauseous thinking about no I can't do it I can't do it I can't I can't make the the Popeye stop. Well, for my is it actually good? I've only had it without the bread. <laughs> and, how, and how was it without the bread? Oh my god, pretty good. I'm so, trying to stay away from that though. <laughs> Going, I don't eat fast food much. No, I know, but you. But, but when I do, but that was that was um, business research, right? But I mean, when you, I do, it's delicious. Going back to the octrification of our marketplace, yeah. um, and I think that'll probably end up being the title of this episode: spongy octrification. Yeah. Um, you want to talk about another category? I got another category for you. Uh, what's the other category? How about? I mean, many, many people are very interested right now in not just pure play retail, not just pure play industrial, but people are very interested in flex space. I don't know if you've noticed that. I think flex depends on the market. I think it's a very market by market thing, but I think you're right. So that can be one of our categories of octification. It's becoming, what I've noticed is, is that all these like traditional office buyers, right? They all need something to do. What do you mean? Let's let's unpack that a little more. <laughs> what do I mean? I mean, I'll be the first person to say, okay, unless you're buying an office building in Fulton Market or a like kind Fulton Market, right? Uh, I mean, call it Uptown in Dallas or uh, uh, any of these other kind of like you know cool hip markets in cities with real population growth, not named San Francisco. I mean, th- those office markets are doing well. But I think that, but I think that the traditional office buyer has completely changed their tune, and they're looking for a completely different type of product. They want to go to Florida. They want to go to. They want to go to Georgia. They want to go to the Panhandle. They want to go to communities that really still need space. And I'm not talking million square feet Amazon distribution centers, right? I'm talking about right your classic flex space, 
where people need just a little office, not a lot. I need, you know, I got, I got, I got five, 10 employees, but I need real warehousing space. Right. And I think that this product, there's been no, no, no bigger push in rent growth than in this product. And I think that it's giving these office buyers something to do. Something to do in terms of new acquisition targets. Well, yeah, because they're not buying an office building anymore. Let's just call it what it is. They're not. Would you buy an office building? I'd buy the right office building, but the, it's a it's a narrow window that fits that criteria like I said, right now. You're going to buy the building in Fulton Market that looks great for for fourteen, fifteen. Yeah, I mean, I'm okay buying the right single tenant deal in Omaha or multi tenant, and I use Omaha as an example because I think there are still good deals out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's 10%, 20% of the product, not, not 70 or 80%. Right. So I think this, I think this new category, like, I mean, it's not new, right? Flex isn't new, but I think that, I think that there's a lot more players in the flex space today than there were, you know, five years ago. Definitely the beneficiary of some of the changing trends in the other segments. Let's get back to the octrification though, and really talk about, of, you know, the theoretical six or seven or eight different buckets that the market is split into right now. Going back to your point, how many of those market segments can you get away with still being aggressive in pricing versus needing to be more conservative in pricing? I think that the most aggressive space was that space I really spoke of at the beginning. Yeah, that sub $3 million. It's the sub $3 million, which means that you have rents typically under $150,000 a year. And I think you can still get away with terrible locations. I think as long as you have credit or as long as you have a name brand tenant. And I think that it still trades very, very fluidly because I think, and and I'll go out on a limb and I'll say this. I don't think that that space is going to slow down. I think a lot of people think that once exchange money, 1031 money kind of dries up, right? That that market kind of slows down. But but, But the thing is, is, is that if it's a very fluid market and it's the most common space of where a 1031 buyer plays, right? And the product is constantly being sold. Well, everybody selling still needs to place their money. So to me, it's a revolver that hopefully does not. And I think the other thing about that market, I've talked about this many times, you're probably tired and um, uh, annoyed at hearing me say it so much, but this is also very much about the fact that there's a lot of all cash investors who just don't need to depend on the financing, which is much more expensive. And that keeps, in my view, the liquidity and, and interest in that sub $3 million space really strong. Right. So that's well, people what people don't want to buy four camps. Let's just call it what it is though. Right. They're not going to buy, even if you have a, a an 80 or a hundred thousand dollar rent, right. And you want to go sell that deal for two and a half to $3 million. Right. I, I, I think that cap rates come up. Yeah. I mean, if there were, let's say theoretically last year in America, there was 200 deals, net lease deals that traded under a four cap or, or right at a four cap, that number probably isn't going to be more than 110 this year. It's going to be cut in half. There's just far less deals. And you're, you're looking at me, give me a funny look. You might even think that's 50, but what, whether it's 50 or 100, that market is going to be cut in half because these people just, even if they're not using debt, they know that they can buy a, a little better, whether it's 20 or 30 basis points. Right. And, and that's where perception becomes reality, right? Just people believe that the market is softening and they want to pay the softer price. That's exactly and right. And no one's willing to stretch and say, well... And that becomes... 
a self-fulfilling prophecy. When people are thinking and feeling like that, they don't bid as aggressively or do a second bid and it starts to really take hold and shift the market more than anything. So that's what you're watching, pricing in different dynamics. I'll tell you what I'm watching for the balance of the year. And what I'm really going to be paying close attention to is how the frequency with which we start seeing pricing reductions. I was just speaking with our research department and we're going to be pulling together a report to look at the month over month and year over year increases in price reductions. And I'm keenly interested to see what this looks like, but I think September over September, September 22 to September 21, I think we're going to see 30 to 40% more price reductions as a percentage of the deals in the market. And I think the days on market for the inventory that's in the net lease market is going to increase on the magnitude of 30 days. I think you're absolutely right. And where do you stand? I mean, I have my own thoughts on this. Where, where do you stand on, on the first offer, maybe your best offer right now? I think it was Blaze on our team who said this. If I'm not mistaken, the bird in the hand has never been more valuable. And I think that's so well said. Um, I think that generally speaking in quote unquote normal market conditions, your best offer is your, uh, the first offer is your best offer about 25 to 40% of the time. Right now, I think the best offer is your best, the first offer is your best offer probably 60 to 70% of the time. And worse yet, if you don't take it and that buyer goes and finds another deal, you may be 25 to 40 basis points worse off by not accepting it. I was going to say 50. I really think that, you know, we're starting to see more of a stretch than I think that you or I could have predicted at the beginning of the year, right? I think we were really under the the lens and thought that it was a 25 to 35 basis point move in every category. We thought cap rates were going to go up, but we said there's probably a lid on it because interest rates aren't going to get to, and I might have said five and a half. And I, I I probably also said, you know, I don't think there's going to be this huge slowdown because there's just so much 1031 money in the market. That's, That's exactly right. But let, let's be honest. There's been one thing that has shifted the entire landscape that we never could have anticipated in January. That's the dirty I word, inflation. No one could have anticipated inflation would be on a run rate of 8%. They couldn't have anticipated as a byproduct of that, that the treasury would go as high as 3.5%. And that's just really hit the market. And now we're on a run rate where, in my view, we're going to end the year 40 or 50 basis points higher in cap rate than where we started it. And do you think, where where do you think interest rates end up? I mean, do they end up at six? Well, I mean, you know, I have a whole litany of views around, you know, we're getting ready for another 75 to 100 basis point hike from the Fed. And yet the 10-year treasury has gone from 350 to 280. In my view, people are really looking at the Fed rate hike as a steep hill, not a prolonged hill. I think people believe that the Fed is going to be able to get interest inflation under control in a six to nine month time frame, not a 36 or 60-month time frame. And as such, that's why the 10-year treasury is staying low. So if the 10-year treasury stays low, that's going to keep a cap rate on, on interest rates as long as lending doesn't really get further eroded from where it's at right now. You know what I think is really interesting that I don't think we've talked about? I think that for the first time in maybe, maybe our business careers, we are going to see more transaction volume and the pace at which deals get done be faster in the commercial market than the residential market. I, I, I mean, I'm just thinking about that. I don't think we've been in a market, even in the pits, right, of 2009, right, 
where literally no one was doing deals. No one was doing deals, right? I mean, well, and those that were doing deals were the smartest in all of us, right? But even then, if you think about it, there were still probably more home transactions, residential transactions going on than there were commercial transactions. I, I'm telling you, I mean, right now, right now, I mean, they, they are saying that mortgage applications have fallen off a cliff, right? And there, while there's very little inventory, you talk, you talk to any residential real estate broker and they'll tell you there's, there's very little inventory in the prime areas, but that there aren't that many buyers. And I, I mean, look, you see what Pulte, you see what Toll Brothers has come out and said. It's pretty unbelievable that we may finish the year, right, with a 10-year treasury that's right around three, right, plus or minus, right? And if I want to go and make a mortgage application with the best of credit, that they may tell me my interest is six to six and a quarter, on a 30-year fix. It's not quite that high right now. It's broken back it's five, above five. It's five and a quarter. And it's possible that lenders continue to tighten standards if they start to see downward momentum in housing pricing. So They're scared. Yeah, it is something to watch for sure. And that really would be an interesting inversion to see re- uh, commercial properties having more liquidity and turnover. Um, you actually gave me a great segue, which you know is, is, is related to what you were just talking about. And that's kind of the second big topic that we wanted to talk about here. And that's, that's this question of shadow inventory in the commercial real estate and net lease market. And uh, you're nodding your head. You know what I mean by shadow inventory, but let's break it down for, for our listeners. Shadow inventory is you know that, that um, percentage of inventory that's on the market where sellers are sellers at a price, often a really aggressive price, but they're not sellers at the quote unquote market, whatever that market might be on any particular deal. Uh, tends to linger, tends to draw the days on market averages. And one of the things I'm watching and I'm genuinely curious about is how much of the inventory on the market right now are sellers not going to sell when they realize that pricing is 25 to 60 points wider? And maybe the starting point that I'd like to ask your views on is if we looked at the quote unquote normalized times in our market, what percentage of the inventory, and I know there's some bifurcation here as well, but what percentage of the inventory is, is shadow inventory? I'm going to take a probably a very different stance on this than you think. I actually think that most inventory on the I think the shadow inventory is very small right now. I think that most people who are on the market want to sell. And I would almost say need to sell. And I would almost say don't don't have any interest in owning this asset anymore. I think that we're at this critical time where things are going to take longer to sell because we are working against the grain. But I think that eventually most sellers will meet the market and we will see pretty healthy transaction volume. And these cap rates will reflect a pretty decent delta from where they were listed Versus where they sell. So I got to get you on the record, though. If there is at any given time, let's say, you know, pick a number, two billion of inventory in the net lease marketplace, you know, in 2019, before the pandemic, what percentage of that two billion dollar inventory did those sell- did sellers plan to clear at market? Fifteen percent. 
that's the percentage that you think wasn't going to clear at market. Yeah. So you yeah. would say 85% was, you know, real market inventory. Right. And I would agree with that. I think right. for me, that was, that's kind of what I would have thought. Right. But your view is that the 15% is much lower today. I do. I do. Because I, I believe that there's a lot of people who are, we're, we're in the posturing phase right now. Right. Totally agree with the posturing phase, right. but I, I mean, I have a different view. I want to hear your view, no, no, but no, I agree. We're no, in the posture, yeah. posturing we're in the, phase. We're in, the, we're in the posturing phase right now, right? We're in the phase where, where people want to act like they don't have to sell. And they may even say those words, right? They may even say, Isaiah, Isaiah if you can't get it, you know, we're going to list this asset for a five cap. If you can't get something between a five and five and a half cap, you know, I'll just keep it. I mean, I got 10 years of lease term and I got an investment grade tenant and you know, I, I, I may not love where the property is, but you know what? Like I, I built this thing or I retrofitted this building and I put this tenant in. I know it's a good deal. Yeah, I know it's a good deal, right? And eventually when they realize that they're not selling between a five and a five and a half cap and I bring them the six two cap, I think they sell. I don't think it takes... I mean, excuse me, I think it takes seven to nine months to get there. And I think that our deal cycle volumes are going to near nine to 12 months. But I think that these people ultimately are sellers because I think that they recognize- What makes them sellers in your view? And I think this is where you're going, but tell me more about, about that. It's about, least, it's, about, it's about rent growth. There's not a lot of rent growth in, in a lot of what we sell, ultimately speaking, right? Relative to, uh, relative to inflation, relative to a lot of things. And I think that people believe that constants are going to rise. And I think that people believe that money is not getting any cheaper. And, and I think that maybe even more so than all of those things, including the, the, the limited rent increases they have in the primary term, I, I think that most people uh, didn't do deals on their own. And I think that people have partners. I think that people have people they answer to. And that while we're... We're not a debt-laden market, right? I don't think we're an over-leveraged market by any means. But I think that we're a market that, uh, that raised a lot of equity, right? I think we're in a market that, um, that put deals together by giving away equity, not by taking on too much debt. So and I think that that creates forced sellers. So your view is that the 15% shadow inventory, not real inventory, went to something like 7% or 8%. I'm going to take the view that the shadow inventory went from 15-ish percent in 2019 to something around 25 or 30 percent in 2022 and 2023. Mm -hmm. And here's why I'm... By the way, when you have a record-breaking year next year... I want you to remember this conversation. Well, hey, just because shadow inventory doesn't goes up doesn't mean I'm not going to have a record year. Those two <laughs> things are not mutually exclusive from one another. Um, they can they can have something. They can't have relation to one another. But the reason I'm at 25% is as it follows. First of all, I think that a lot of people, as they see the cap rate go up, the purchase price go down, and their implied equity go down substantially. You know, when you see an asset decrease in price by 10, 15, 20%, if you have any kind of reasonable leverage, your equity is actually getting hit really substantially, 40, 50, 60%. And what that ends up doing is really skewing the cash on cash returns that the asset is throwing off. If you were throwing off a cash implied cash on cash return at a five cap of, let's say, 6%, 
And all of a sudden, the value on that asset is now at a 6% and your equity, a six cap, and your equity has gone down by 40%. Now, the implied cash on cash of your equity is something in the magnitude of 8%, 8.5%. And I think we're going to have a lot of people who see the price on their asset go from a five to five and a half or five and a half to six, and their implied return on the capital in that deal is going to go way up. That makes it hard for them to sell that asset if they don't have a loan maturity coming up because they know that the reinvestment of that gets way harder. If they have a loan coming up, entirely different story. Those sellers, in my view, are still absolutely sellers, probably more so than in 2019 because the refi has become much harder. That's the first reason I think the shadow inventory is going to go from 15 to 25-ish. The second reason is as follows, and it's one of the stupidest reasons, but I think you'll agree we see it all the time. The psychology of not hitting an underwritten exit cap rate or the psychology of knowing you could have sold at a number, but now the number is 550 is so difficult for sellers to get their head wrapped around. We call that the psychology of being wrong. (laughs) And by the way, there are plenty of people who went under in 2009, 2010, who ultimately just waited too long. It's not the psychology of being wrong. It's close to that. It's the psychology of being shown or proven to be wrong. Because what happens is these people know they're wrong. Yeah, absolutely. They know they missed the boat by 50 basis points, 60 basis points. But they're holding on for a miracle. They're holding on a miracle and they're holding on out of shame so their investors don't say, wait a second, Isaiah, that was a five cap. We had all these comps. You kept sending me these comps. That was a five cap a year ago. Why are we selling at a 560? Those are difficult conversations if you have other people's money that, that's riding alongside of you. And I think that makes a lot of sellers sticky. Now, I think that shame factor goes away as people start to realize the market is really moving because then it's a herd mentality. Everyone doesn't want to be wrong. But I think right now and for the next few months, I think that's a factor. I absolutely agree. And I think that uh, I'm obviously taking the other side of the coin. Uh, on that, but I, I do know that we both agree that the market has been made by giving away equity, not taking on too much. I, I agree wholeheartedly yeah. with that. And that's part of part of the reason I think we will see shadow inventory increase. Now, I do think this is going to be a temporary thing, right? Like I think what we're talking about here is is a, a three to six month dynamic. And I think we're really going to be where it goes from there is going to be driven by inflation. It's going to be driven by the 10-year treasury. If inflation doesn't come down as the July numbers suggest it could, and if it really stays pronounced at or above 6%, then I think that's really going to accelerate these dynamics. If inflation does start to come down, I could see some of this start to pull back and take the steam out of the market moving upward in cap rates. I agree, because then banks will get more comfortable lending large slugs of money and people will get... Excited. You did that little shoulder shimmy there, and I it's do. A it's a shimmy. It's a shimmy. No, no, no. Oh, and then, by the way, that's 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 the classic real estate investor, right? That's right. Everyone's got to have that swag, that shimmy. Just getting excited. Yeah. Now, I will say, I'm, I'm, and this could be a whole different episode into itself. I'm fascinated by the weird impacts inflation is going to have on our market that people don't haven't even thought about. Inflation. In many ways, there's some really good elements for net lease. If you have assets that don't have as much lease term remaining and you're seeing construction costs continue to escalate and rental levels go up, you have a trapped tenant. You have a trapped tenant and your property is getting better every month and inflation keeps going because your rent actually is below market. So below market rents 
have never been more valuable than they are today. Particularly, yeah. and and uh, you know, frankly, below market rent, even if it still has options on it, um, you know, even if it's got twenty years of options, I think that's really valuable. It's more valuable if you only have five years of of term and no options, but it's valuable in either case. And I think people don't fully appreciate that. So that's one dynamic that that could start to play out. Um, but I, I'm really excited. We're sitting here. It's August seventeenth, and and the next. 45 days is going to be one of the most important 45 day stretches in real estate in quite some time. So I am eager to get into the arena. I am too. I'm really looking forward to see how this market plays out. And I know that uh, either way, we're going to have some fun. We are going to have lots of fun. Well, I think we can leave it there with net takeaways today and we will be back next week with another exciting episode. Until then, take care. Take care.